Hey, Paul! <laughs> is that a raincoat? Yes, it is! <laughs> you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all. Welcome back to Be Real. It is your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast from Portland, Oregon. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer, and joining me on the other line, he just got back from a matinee showing of Oh Africa, Brave Africa. It's Noah Ballard. Hey, buddy. How are you? Um, I'm good. I've I've just missed the hell out of you, though. I missed you. I haven't uh, gazed upon your face. On Skype, uh, in m- a month. It's yeah, it's been a long time. Being gone for a month, then you look back at the year and you're like, was that a short year? Or did I actually was I gone for a month? <laughs> it was a while. Yeah, you've been gone for a while. Um, yeah, it was nice to follow you on the Instagram. Uh, Thanks, it seemed like you had a good time. Uh, I did. I you know we can talk about it in a second in the in the corner that's reserved for the ethos. You wanna should we tell the people why we're here today? Yeah, we're here to do a podcast called Be Real. Yes. Where we take three movies of a similar genre and we rate them on watchability and quality in the context of both filmmaking at large and the movies themselves. We've done this now some 90 times and Yeah. The, the I doubt first... you're jumping in at this point. You know it's you know the game. Maybe you're a huge Brady Stanellis head in which case you're either going to love or hate what we have to say today. <laughs> Maybe you are Brett Easton Ellis himself, and you're so petty that <laughs> any sort of social media we did for this podcast drew you, Mr. Ellis, to this to listen to what we had to say about. And I will, in fairness to Mr. Ellis, at least, uh, express what I feel to be his most recent opinions of these films, because he's gone back and forth. Right, yeah, of course. Quite a bit, uh, in terms of what he thought of... Uh, but yeah, this is the Brett Easton Ellis Film Adaptation Podcast. Yes. We are not going to do The Informers uh, or anything else Brett Easton Ellis has scribed, because Chance and I both care for each other. <laughs> yeah. And take that forever. Take that for what it's worth. It's worth a lot to me, man. So we're going to talk about, uh, you know, his three most famous and, you know, consecutive looked upon with some favorability early works. So Less Than Zero, Rules of Attraction, and American Psycho, uh, all written between, what, 85 and 91. And then these are all, well, Less Than Zero movie came out in 87, American Psycho is 2000, and Rules of Attraction is 2002, I believe. So... Yeah. Can we do them in order in which they are written, though? Which would mean less than zero rules of attraction and then American Psycho? We may. We may. Okay. That's you know, great. if Brett Easton Ellis does listen to this and hate it, the thing that that will lead to is us being on his podcast, because that's exactly what he would do. I don't think that that's going to be his thinking. I think he's going to subtweet us for the rest of his life. <laughs> okay, and... I'll, t- I'll take that, too. And then maybe rant about us on his, like, bi-decade podcast. <laughs> maybe he'll have Andrew McCarthy back on to talk shit about us. Right. He'll have, like, all of our previous guests on to be like, yeah, fuck those guys. Right. Yeah, I went on their show and they didn't know anything about movies. Um, yeah, the very thought of this has turned us petty. So before we go too, <laughs> we go too far, why don't we uh, go to the ethos corner, shall we? Yeah. 
keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Little rider, Donnie. Donnie, little rider. So before Chance, you left for Europe, I put it to you that if we were going to do the Brad Easton Ellis podcast, that while you were in Europe, uh, much like Kip Perdue's character in Rules of Attraction, you yeah. had to do uh, the same style recount of your exploits and your travels. That's right. So I guess without further ado, Chance, do you want to lead us into what is, I think, the best audio that we've ever produced on this <laughs> podcast. Can I could I add just a little bit of a do in the form of, why don't we put in 10 seconds of the real thing now so people know what it sounds like? To give them context, yeah. Because sure. it's, it's really, like, foul and drug-addled, and I feel like I make fun of that just a little bit. So here's Kip Pardue. I find the one hetero girl in the place where we dry hump on the dance floor. We cab it back to her home house. I strip her clothes off, suck her toes, and we fuck. I hung out for four or five days. Met the world's biggest DJ, Paul Oakenfold. Kept missing the changing of the guards. Wrote my mom a postcard I never sent. Bought some speed from an Italian junkie who was trying to sell me a stolen bike. Smoked a lot of hash that had too much tobacco in it. Saw the Tate, saw Big Ben, ate a lot of weird English. And uh, now, here's my trip. Jetted from Portland on a one-stop flight that landed in Reykjavik at 4 in the morning where I ate airport shrimp that tasted fresh from the Arctic Ocean and cost something like $22. Made it to London where we forced ourselves to stay awake until we could check into our hostel which had its own vending machine specifically for earplugs that contained no earplugs. Went to the British Museum and thought for the first time in my life about how no one ever thought to write down how poor people lived for the first several dozen millennia of humanity. Learned that the last pharaoh fled Egypt in 343 BC and thought I'd be pretty good at fleeing a dying empire. Took a walk on the south waterfront and saw a man who looked like George Smiley trying to bite a hole in a plastic coffee cup lid. Heard a busker put his own spin on behind blue eyes by not pronouncing any of the words. Saw my first Pret-a-Manger, called it Pret-a-Monger, and Sarah, who is the love of my life and the person with whom I'm in a monogamous relationship, told me it's pronounced Pret-a-Manger. Drank a Guinness. Tried to go to a bullshit corporate bookstore, but it was closed. Took a recommendation from some friends about a kick-ass distillery and got drunker than they did when they were there, I'm sure of it. Took an easy jet to Cyprus to see my sister, who is the smartest member of our family and almost certainly the most motivated and high-strung person currently residing on the island of Cyprus. She could barely talk because the laryngitis made sound like Karen Allen when she yells at Indiana Jones, I'm your goddamn partner! Finished reading, the spy who came in from the cold on a beach full of Russians. Managed not to pay for reserving a beach chair. Walked the streets of Larnaca and discovered that the surprising number of feral cats are the only ones who seem agnostic about the territorial struggle between the Greek and Turkish Cypriots. Learned how to say thank you in Greek but couldn't get it right until we were almost gone. I've caught a stume for trying. My mom landed my sister rented a Mazda 20 years newer than the Mazda she already owns to get us around. Watched Hercules. Tried to go the distance. Drank an incredibly cheap beer called Kio. Tried for three days to remember the name of the Turkish dictator but all I could think of was Naduar. Saw a street fight. Toured the Turkish side of Nicosia. Felt the fear of a UN checkpoint only it was in the middle of an outdoor mall. Flew to Santorini with Sarah, the woman with whom I'm still in a monogamous long-term relationship with, and took a catamaran cruise. I was the only one brave enough to jump in the Mediterranean Sea. The crew was Greek, and great. The only thing Greek about the passengers was that they looked like they'd pledged lamb to Kai. Watched half a breakfast at Tiffany's, ate a lamb kebab, hiked seven miles from Thera to Ia, during which 3,000 lizards jumped out of the way, started a tire of cappuccinos. Saw a CrossFit gym that was just a parking lot full of crates that had the word parkour spray-painted on the side. Made it to Rome, mostly so we could stop paying the tourism tax in Santorini. Bought an expensive meal from a waiter who reminded me of Andy Circus and touched me on the shoulder over and over. May have been food drunk for the first time in my life. Went to the Coliseum right when it opened, which as far as I'm concerned is the only time to go. Made fun of Emperor Nero a lot, but that's probably exactly what he deserves. Had a small breakdown at the Pantheon over how phones have ruined all international tourist attractions. Managed to come out of it by drinking Peronis. Bought some clothes, which I said I was not going to do, but then I saw Italian men and felt I had to. Heard an American tourist ask the staff at a Roman pizzeria, Well, what do y'all recommend? 
bought wine at a bodega that only sold wine and shampoo, fended off an eczema flare-up and about three dozen rose salesmen, took the train to Florence only to find out that our Airbnb had been cancelled, Twitter shamed the company and got them to book us another one right next to the big dome, no bomb went off, watched Casablanca, saw the David, got tired of cappuccinos, had the only fight of the trip with a woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long-term relationship, solved it with good communication and by going to a bar for an hour and reading a book about how the film industry is dying, celebrated our six-year anniversary, took a bus to Tuscany with a guide who apologized for her voice being hoarse because she's Italian, ate our sixth gelato of the trip, started to read Heart of Darkness, took some gag photos of the leaning tower, lay in the grass, felt I was becoming scientifically interesting. Had a final breakfast at an American-themed Florentine diner because we wanted breakfast that wasn't just cappuccinos and croissants. Was told we'd get a free cola if we Instagrammed our overcooked eggs. Nearly died at the Florence airport when they said the flight might be canceled due to hot winds. Waited. Felt a cold coming on. Hot winds died down. Cold did not. Finally watched Interstellar in the way Christopher Nolan always intended on a 9-inch screen above Greenland. Calculated we'd walked 136 miles in 20 days. Chewed spearmint gum until my jaw hurt and thought about how I'm too old to either lose or find myself. That was incredible. I have to say, the fact that when you suggested it, I was like, ooh, I only vaguely remember this. And is this going to be, what am I getting into? But keeping notes and jokes and observations of just how weird it is to be in foreign countries for three weeks really, I think, made some memorable parts of the experience in my mind I wouldn't have held on to. So I appreciate the assignment. You're welcome. Uh, how have you been? I went to New Orleans for the first time. Yeah. Um, How was that? With it was good with uh, podcast favorites Nick White and Justin Taylor. Um, so we visited the University of Southern Mississippi and talked a bit about publishing. And Nick did a nice reading, and then we drove to New Orleans, which is, I mean, it's just sort of like a a moral holiday of a city. I mean, you can like drink anywhere, and we were staying down in the French Quarter, um, and we got we went on one of these ghost tours. Oh yeah. And that was like a waste of money and time, but we did get to like be introduced to at least one prostitute. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say one apparition, but no. No, there were very few ghosts, as Justin sort of, you know, <laughs> reminded me after. It took Justin to point that out. <laughs> well, I was just so like, sort of overwhelmed by the experience of this guy who was like, I mean by his own definition, sort of, like, not going to do the whole, like, dog and pony show. He wasn't going to be, like, overly dramatic. He, like, just didn't give a fuck and, like, had a, like, you know, self-described hatred for the city of New Orleans. Wow. So it was a pretty interesting 90 minutes of my life. That is fascinating. I wish I could have been there for the lack of ghosts. It was fine. I mean, like some people like ate other people and like other people like murdered people. And then like on your tour, <laughs> not an art tour, but oh, okay. in the history of New Orleans. Oh. And then he talked about vampires for a while. I highly recommend the experience. All right, all right. OK, let's run. OK, shall we get into these movies? Yeah. This is interesting. So we're going to start with Less Than Zero. Please. Um, 85, like I said, is the published date of the book. 87 is the movie. So very quickly turned around to capture something about the zeitgeist of teenage excess. A different side of the coin from like John Hughes, contemporary John Hughes things, I would say. Yes. And so the book was sort of a surprise success. Um, We're still in college, right? He's still in college and the book was sold. 
And then it was like they released it and it was like a big summer read and like the MTV crowd like really got behind it and became a big bestseller. And yeah, and two years later they make this movie, um, you know, with the likes of Robert Downey Jr. and Andrew McCarthy and uh, Jamie Gertz, Jamie Gertz. Yeah, yeah. And a young James Spader. Yeah. Um, And Michael Bowen plays a big creep. Yes. It's a... It's a sort of its own brat pack of people you'll sort of recognize from adulthood. Sure. I mean, James Spader never had that hair again. No, God But bless he's got him. some great hats in the blacklist. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Andrew McCarthy, Andrew, if, I mean, if you want to go film literary parallel, I mean, Andrew McCarthy sort of is a Jay McInerney type <laughs> in terms of yes. know, how bright those lights shone for a minute and a minute only. Yes. Yeah, he's not exactly what I... So I read the book first. And the, the movie's, like, not super well-regarded. It has Nor like a is six, it faithful to the book at all, right? It's pretty faithful, I would say, in the first three quarters. But the ending is, like, a wildly more palatable ending than, like, what actually ends up happening that involves, like, an underage prostitution ring being busted. Okay. So this one is definitely the, is the character PG-13. of 13 is the character of Clay way different in the book? Well, the Clay... So Clay's broken up both into, like, these, you know, parties and nightclubs and restaurants he's meandering in and out of, and then he's broken up in these sort of italicized sections of him, like, confessing things to his therapist. Okay. Which, if published now, would be, like, just garbage. Uh-huh. But <laughs> back then, like, seemed somewhat clever. Sure. This one, like, really doesn't have the same ennui, if you will. And it, what it, it sort of chooses instead of its, like, very internalized ennui, which maybe, like, doesn't work in a movie, um, is a more contrived sort of you know, dynamic, romantic dynamic between some of these characters. Well, I mean, what is there to set up, really? I mean, Clay and Julian and um, Blair, uh, we open on the day they graduate from high school, and Julian, played by Robert Downey Jr., his dad, uh, gives him a bunch of money. Things couldn't be peachier, even though Clay's going away to uh, college in Connecticut or New Hampshire or wherever every Brett Easton Ellis person goes to college. Um, yeah, Camden, which we'll see uh, <laughs> firsthand in our next movie. There you go. Uh, and then in the course of four months, uh, shit gets turned upside down in sunny Los Angeles. Between August and December, uh, it turns out that Blair and Julian have have hooked up, which Clay has discovered when Blair won't come out and visit him, uh, finds them in bed together. Uh, and then Julian just goes way, way off the deep end, tries to invest in a nightclub, starts doing a whole, whole bunch of coke, gets in deep with Rip, uh, the local uh, dealer played by James Spader. And yes, yeah, so when Andrew McCarthy, Clay, comes back for Christmas, you know, he has to confront Julian and or doesn't have to confront Julian. They just kind of run into. I mean, it's hard. Well, they to, were best. They were s- childhood best friends. Right. Yeah. And one stays in his hometown, and the other one goes off to college. Except that, like, instead of this being like a sweet home Alabama kind of thing, mm-hmm. the where they stayed was Los Angeles, which is full of money and cocaine. Right. Right. It's hard to summarize any of these because you know that's not. Brady Snellis doesn't really write for plot. 
So the idea right. that somebody has to confront someone else is, is not true. They're just going to run into each other at somebody's Christmas party. This is basically uh, a story about dissent. In this case, Julian's dissent into, you know, having a, a bloodstream that is 90% cocaine and uh and 10 percent alcohol <laughs> right well you got to come down a little bit and, right um and i guess clay reconciling with blair but that's this is what what andrew mccarthy accomplishes in this movie is so nebulous to me and it might not be anything so let's get into it clay is coming home on vacation home to beverly hills Home to his two closest friends. All you have to do is relax. I'm going to pay you back. All you need to do is trust me. I don't want to trust you, Julian. I just want my 50K, all right? Home to the beautiful. You don't look happy. But do I look good? <laughs> you have trouble describing the plot because there is the book has no real plot. I mean, it picks up sort of at the end when they're trying to, quote unquote, save Julian. Right. But this book is not like a romantic triangle uh, kind no. of narrative, which the movie sort of forces it to be. The book, I would say, is more or less about like figuring out like where the hell you came from once you contextualize it. Okay, interesting. And so Brady Stanellis goes off to Bennington College in Vermont and comes back and realizes Los Angeles is like an open sewer. Yeah. You know, and the book's more of like a taxi driver kind of look at Los Angeles, where this movie is sort of a darker hues. I wish I had read it. That sounds so much more interesting than this. Oh, yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's not very long either. And it's like an easy read. And it's in these like short sort of clipped chapters. I mean, that's sort of all of uh, Brett Easton Ellis's books because he's lazy. (laughs) Well, yeah, he is. Uh, He's deeply postmodern. And part of that postmodernity is sloth. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Brad. <laughs> yeah, well, happy to come on and talk about it. Um, I mean, Robert, Robert Downey Jr. is the best part of this movie, I think. Is that, I think that's kind of inarguable. Do you argue Oh, this is it? definitely like a star-making turn, I would say, for Robert Downey Jr. And weirdly, like, mirroring slash sort of guessing at of the course. own fall of grace of Robert Downey Jr., which maybe made his inevitable downfall more palatable to, like, an American theater-going audience. So my favorite Downey ever is Zodiac Downey, which is a similar sort of, like, fall into, you know, drugs, ending your life, or at least ending what you do. Um, I've just, I think it's a great look for him because it's sort of his... I mean, there's a hint of it in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang too, right? Where right. just that world weary, well before you have any right to be, uh, kind of way about you, and also just fast and loose with the truth. I think that while I don't love how it becomes an after-school special about cocaine, I think that one of the like the reconciliation scene with the dad is, has a few moments of wisdom in it, where he's just like, "Can't you tell when I'm actually telling the truth?" And he's so you know desperate about that fact, and the dad's like. Of, of course not. Like, right. that was the first thing that went away. No, I can't tell when you're telling the truth. And it feels very television. I think the thing you said about after school special is smart because like, sure, it has like weird sort of heavy morals at the end. But the other thing too, is it like, it feels like television. It feels like a TV movie filmed on 35 millimeter. Sure. I think you could argue that, and we'll get to rules of attraction. I think you could argue a lot of Ellis would make for far better television than film. 
Yes. Especially like the informers, which unfortunately I've seen, which is just like, let's make a movie out of a collection of short stories and include all the stories. And it's like, why would you do such a thing? There's too much nuance here. Like if you made it right now in HBO, it would be like somewhere between um, that one with Gabriel Byrne in treatment where he's like seeing all these patients Mm -hmm. and you just see their conversations and like a, Skins or something. The OC, maybe. Teen, or the OC, yeah. And it would be, I mean, it would definitely be like premium cable, but it wouldn't be as like jarringly. I feel like this movie is jarringly sort of redacted. Redacted? How do you mean? Like the fact that like they're unwilling to show plot points from the book that like otherwise hang also the plot of the movie together. Oh, okay. It's like sort of what you get is like a movie of like, why are we in this scene now? Right. Like, oh, what God. caused yeah. this? Like, why did we why did we know Julian was here to pick him up? Like, are we missing a scene? I can't let us out of here without talking about Andrew McCarthy. I just don't think he and you know, the career backs me up on this. When it comes to playing the the straight-laced white boy, you're either Ethan Hawke or you're Robert Sean Leonard. And Andrew McCarthy's Robert Sean Leonard. Like, right. There has to be something... And this something... character is not Robert Sean Leonard. This there, character yeah. is a deeply conflicted, sexually curious, deeply depressed and alienated person. And Andrew McCarthy is just like... That's not even close to what he plays. Yeah, he's playing a hero from a John Hughes movie at best, or at worst, he's, like, auditioning for, like, the sequel to Revenge of the Nerds. You can't have nothing behind the boring, well-bred guy, or else he's just boring and well-bred. But that's the thing, he's not, like, the character's not boring. It's just the way it's been adapted is so whitewashed as to be, like... Look at this morally superior young man who managed to make something of himself when that's I just don't think that's the read of like what this story is attempting to tell us. Yeah. I don't know. James Spader's great though. I love Spader. Spader's great. I would not want to owe money to like mid eighties James Spader. He and Julian are the ones that seem like the leftovers of what would I imagine the Alice novel to be. Just like this guy who's dressed in orange with like white pants who seems like such a like, you know, you're like an effeminate Los Angeles gangster who calls everybody sport because he like read Great Gatsby was the only book he ever read before he just started dealing in high school. Right. Yeah. Spader's great. Um and I think this movie has some interesting moments that are retained from the original manuscripts. Like there's that great exchange where like Clay sees Blair. They really have like a, their first conversation they've had since he's come back. And he's like, you, are you happy? You don't look happy. And she says, but do I look good? <laughs> yeah. And so much of this movie is that question. And the book is that question too. It's like, do we look thin? Like, we ordered thin. Like, we didn't order happy. We ordered thin. <laughs> you do get the first of two nosebleeds written off by the line, ha rusty pipes. Yeah. <laughs> God. I was hoping that appeared in American Psycho, but it did not. I would love to did go you three have, three. Did you have any favorite, like, rip lines that were, like, no other actor other than a young James Spader <laughs> has the charisma to pull off? 
I don't have anything written down, I'm sorry to say. You? I think my favorite is, this is not a recess. Everyone is accountable. I mean, that could easily be a line from the blacklist too, right? Oh, definitely. Like, after they lose, like, a mid-level FBI person to, like, a plane explosion or a helicopter crashing into something. Yeah, he, like, puts his fedora back on. It's like, this is not recess. I guess I do like the Everyone's use, accountable. I guess I do like the use of the phrase, even Steven, when you're about to send somebody off to be a forced prostitute to pay you back for coke money. Right. We'll be even Steven, sport. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so how do we rate less than zero? Should we uh, go to the segment to explain these ratings? Yeah, let's tell the listeners how we do things here on Be Real. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make Chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. You want to go first? You want me to go first? Well, let's talk a little bit about Brady Sinellis's, like relationship with this movie. When it first came out, right. as I would be if this were my book adapted into a movie he was horrified by it and said yeah, it's like it's not my book this is like it's not my book advised people like not to see it was very crit- like publicly critical of this film and then like he hit middle-aged and re-watched it like when the you know the hollywood and you know book publishing didn't really sort of accept him maybe for like his more avant-garde cough like lazy sort of forays into what he calls art and he likes it now he thinks it's like an interesting artifact of like 
his career and how he's he sees it sort of as a thing that like proves his point as to why he was marginalized. <laughs> I think in general he's more sentimental about it. And like I said, is has had Andrew McCarthy, who he has criticized ravenously through the years, then right. had him on the podcast to no doubt talk about just exactly that. Um, I mean, the other thing that happened is that Brad Easton Ellis stopped being a creature of the literary world and started just being someone who talks about movies. Right. So Yeah, like, and he's also kind of a troll. Well, this is, you know, we should prop let's rate less than zero and then talk about Brady Stanellis. We probably should have done sure. that up front. Um, I think it's an interesting failure. Uh, a failure, uh, or uh, maybe a failure with interesting moments. Uh, I'll call it... More a, interesting moments than less. Yeah. Are you but, going bad, bad? I'm going bad, bad, though. I think it's a... Like a very soft, bad, good, especially if you even have like a passing familiarity with Brett Easton Ellis, the writer slash like performer. I can't get into 40 minutes though of uh, Clay and Blair trying to figure out what's going on with them when in fact nothing is. Right. I can't do that. Right. Uh, I don't know. I liked rewatching this movie and I've seen it a few times and it's, it's, it's goofy. It's goofy as hell to say the least, but I think highly watchable. So, okay. So Brady Sinellis, when, when Please. we, when I said we were going to do this, uh, Sarah, the woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long-term relationship said, um, she's like, Brady Sinellis, doesn't he say some bad stuff about women? And I was like, I don't know, probably. Um, I mean, that's putting it pretty lightly, I would say. Well, And then, of course, I went and looked it up, and he's said such things in relation to film in recent years as, um, you know, women directors can't make good films because it's like an inherently masculine medium. And right, then he I, thinks, yeah, women artists in general, for the most part, are wildly overhyped and just like a byproduct of like a politically correct society. And of course has then, you know, doubled back and apologized for those things and been like, I was drunk on, you know, alcohol and myself, but like, that's just, just kind of what he does. Right. He like says something really inappropriate and then goes like deep into, you know, a cyclone of self-loathing and is just like, I'm sorry I said that I didn't mean it. It's probably because I'm so fucked up. Right. No one hates me more than I hate me. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was famously like he was very critical of Mary Heron directing American Psycho, which we can get into because right. he didn't think that she could do it as a woman. So and then has long teased a remake of it uh, with not her. Right. So. Yeah, we'll have we will, to see. We will get into but that, he's a I problematic. Think. He's a problematic character because he speaks for a set of values that I think were revolutionary when you look at, like, the landscape that he's painted of what society looked like to him in the 80s. Uh-huh. But in, like, the 2000s, like, even, like, not even post-Trump 2000s, like, even, like, in the Obama era, he oh, looked yeah. pretty tone-deaf in his, like... You know, you'd take, like, a universally beloved movie and he'd be like, that's trash. Like, what I actually liked was this, like, you know, horrible comedy that, like, nobody saw. Yeah, provocateurism, I think you can have... I would have an interesting discussion with you about why it's still important and will always be important. But it does not age well as shtick. No. 
it age it gets worse but it, it spoils even worse like by the day at this yeah, point it's true it's true and i think it's one of the reasons that i'll come out and say i think american psycho is his for me probably his best work and definitely the best of these three movies because you have a world that can like a weird um you know sexist racist classist world that can shoulder some of the things that when you're just like i think this is what high school kids are like you're like no they're not what are you talking about right and it's interesting to it's interesting to see like what he believed to be true about these people in this time and then it's interesting to see what people interpreted that and made movies out of right right which I don't think are, especially with Lesson Zero, like I don't think it is a good education in the politics of Brett Easton Ellis, but I almost say that as like an insult to Brett Easton Ellis because this movie's so tame. Yeah. So shall we get to one that's less tame, Rules of Attraction? Please. All right. So you've jumped from 87 to post 9-11, adapted for the screen and directed by a man in Roger Avery, who had his big come up as Tarantino's writing partner on Reservoir Dogs and... Pulp Fiction at the dawn of sort of like a slightly different strain of provocateurist 90s cinema. But then when you put that on something that like kind of, again, reminds me of the OC, it's like, oh, this is with and with James Vanderbeek. Right. <laughs> Speaking of the casting. I mean, we're going to spend, I think, most of our time in this movie talking about the casting. Yeah. So it's this but, is also a strange movie and a strange experience. To right. Watch. It's a strange post 9-11 movie because it's based on a pre-9-11, like way pre-9-11 idea of what the liberal arts. So, yeah, what you have is sort of a very R-rated OC set on a college campus, which then becomes sort of its own. Well, let's talk about the plot. Okay. Good luck. So, yeah, so we have basically three main stories. We have that of James Vanderbeek playing Sean Bateman, who, parenthetically, uh, nerd alert, uh-huh. is Patrick Bateman from American Psycho's younger brother. Right. Sean Bateman's a local drug dealer, and he's going to Camden College, and he's, like, pretty socially successful, and people like him because he's the drug dealer, and he falls in love with Shannon Sossaman. So we have Shannon Sossaman's Lauren Hind character, and she's in love with Kip Pardue's Victor, who's like studying abroad in London, the homage that, uh, or in Europe, the homage that Chance uh, so beautifully homaged earlier. Thank you. Um, and he's so, so we're sort of waiting for him like Godot to come back and give Lauren a bit of like meaning. Cause mm-hmm. like nobody compares to Victor and she's like not having sex with anyone. And her roommate is Jessica Beale's Lara, who is very sexually promiscuous. And the movie sort of insinuates that she's had sex with literally the entire football team. Oh, and there's Ian Summerhalder, who is a gay man who falls in love with Sean Bateman. His name is Paul Denton. And he's got this whole backstory, too, with this guy he was once dating and his weird, controlling, drunk mother. And, yeah, he falls in love with Sean. And it's a weird sort of love quadrangle here. Um that leads to all of the characters sort of reckoning with the people that they've become in sort of a before Christmas pre less than zero kind of, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate kind of question. 
from the corrupt minds that brought you Pulp Fiction in American Psycho. So I pretend to be a vampire. Search for this night's prey. Who will it be? What are the rules of attraction? I think I'm in love with this girl. She's sweet, pure, innocent. She's a virgin. Say what you want. Abstinence is 100% safe, which is less of a percentage than... Whatever, I don't care, I don't major in math. It's totally blank. Typical. Speaking of, have you read how they made that montage? I have, but I can't recall. It's like Avery and Kip Pardue, who you would probably better know, audience, as Sunshine from Remember the Titans. Um, They went to Europe for, like, months and tried to you know, live out the events, just Roger Avery and Kip Pardue, to the extent that Roger Avery has said that Kip Pardue would meet women and then would like hang out with them and they would associate romantically and otherwise to a certain point. And then Roger Avery would be like, I need you to sign this release form. And they would be like, what? And then some of them would sign it and then they would keep feeling, uh, keep doing whatever they were doing. They have over 70 hours of what became that three minute montage. And what is the funny thing about that montage is like it's word for word. The voiceover that um, Victor does is just a very short section of the book. Yeah. And that they decided to spend so much effort on debasing themselves and like filming what is essentially like amateur pornography in fast motion to like go along with it to give context to this character who has very little to do with the actual main story. Um, So emblematic of this movie and the production style though. So my two favorite, I think casting choices in this movie, if I can get to it um, are Clifton Collins jr. As Rupert, who's like the big drug dealer that Sean Bateman's getting his stash from um, I mean, we could just go on and on with his the best lines of his performance. And then can, on the other side honest, of it... I really didn't love that performance. What do you like really? about it? No. I just think they give him, like, so much, like, so many funny things to say, and he just Just, like, fucking motherfucker over and over again? <laughs> yeah. Or the, I need you, like, I need an asshole on my elbow. Okay. And the camera That's literally zooms line. in on his elbow, and he points to it, and he says right here yeah an asshole can i guess your other favorite casting choice you please is it eric stoltz oh it's not but that's a great one so this movie has a tremendous cast is it faye dunaway no you're i think you're going in the wrong direction is it fred savage (laughs) when's fred savage in this movie Fred savage is the heroin addict playing the clarinet who fred savage from the wonder years Oh, Fred Savage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Who did you think I was talking about? Savage Garden? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I didn't think of him. I don't know who I was thinking of. Imagine yeah, the, the, the kid from The Wonder Years shooting up heroin, failing to play the clarinet, and then saying, I can feel my dick. <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Um, what, what do you... What, what class, man? Who teaches that? <laughs> There's this great exchange where... Fucking Dawson Leary from Dawson's Creek is like, Fred Savage, where's the fucking cash? And Fred Savage <laughs> looks him dead in the eye and goes, what class, man? Who teaches that? <laughs> this movie's got some great exchanges. I just don't think this movie adds up to much. 
there are definitely plenty of moments that make it watchable. Like, for instance, the faith dancing on the bed to George Michael's faith, uh, Paul and Dick. That uh, whole like movement of the movie when he, uh, when uh, Victor or not Victor when Paul. Paul Denton goes home or meets the mom in the hotel and then like his his like childhood friend slash former sexual conquest who's drunk the entire time. Who even is that actor? I have no idea. Russell Sams as Richard, but Richard prefers to be called Dick. Much prefers it. <laughs> Dick. That sequence alone is like worth YouTubing like on its own. And I love the Victor montage because of how insane it is and how, how many jokes they're able to communicate, you know, literally breathlessly. Um, and I think that Vanderbeek is just wild in this role. I mean, oh, I, I was sure. pretty critical of him in Varsity Blues. I mean, I think there's a reason that he did not turn well, into... That's like not a great movie. Yeah, it didn't, he didn't turn into a movie star, but he is oddly creepily imposing in this movie especially when like uh kate bosworth is like making like funny eyes at him and then it cuts back to him and he's just like (laughs) he like looks like he's gonna murder her and then he's just like she'll do but that i guess leads me to my question slash concern about this movie is that it's as watchable as it is and as funny as it is in moments it like does not pass like a 2018 smell test for like dozens of reasons. Oh, not by a fucking like, long shot. I mean, you know, I think that uh, Shannon Sassaman delivers a really kind of nice performance and, you know, a almost heartfelt performance in a series of movies where the women characters are so like underwritten or like written into blankness. But the movie opens with her. Being sexually, being sexually assaulted, assaulted um, for which the movie seems to care, not one iota. No, the movie kind of thinks it's funny. Yes. Like, it's, it thinks that this is cynically funny and this is just something oh, that typical, happens. typical, being raped. Yeah, it's it, kind of like... It has that yeah. boredom about it, about, like, that doesn't make... Would that make sense if it's just like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to go to class or, like, my professor's asleep... But does not make sense when it comes to, like, date rape. No. And nor does the way that, like, Sean Bateman behaves, like, with the non-Lauren women. that Because he, he, like, lies to them. Oh, and then punches one of them. So it's it's a hard movie to, like, root for. You know, Brett Easton Ellis writes relatively loveless... um, you know, books in terms of just the affection from him, the affection he wants you to have toward people. So there's no, not a lot of vindication, not a lot to get you no. on Lauren's side. So when she and Paul just like smoke at the end and they're like, yeah, this was a pretty negative experience. Then James Vanderveek rides his motorcycle into the dark and the movie's like all too happy to admit it has no like wrapping up to do. I don't right. know, man. I don't think it adds up to what? anything. Looking at like the source material a little bit, I think the two interesting things about this movie are I, because the movie, I mean, movies are always in third person, unless you're talking about like, you ever see like Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Like, that's I a funny. That's an interesting like play with POV as a first person. Yeah. But 
this movie, I mean, most movies are in third person, and these mo- this this book is written in these like alternating POV chapters, right? Yeah, from these people. So we do. I mean, while all all of the events more or less from the book take place in the movie, I feel like they're more meaningful. Uh-huh. Not to say that they're any less exploitative, but they're like they feel more sort of like we learn something at least about the character by like going through this with them, and it's right. certainly not build as you know such a spectacle like that's my i think my problem with rewatching it now is like a tasteful director who's being sort of uh honest and truthful and you know authentic to the source material like has the sexual assault scene but like doesn't have the drunk guy raping her then vomit on her back right like that's just such a tasteless like insult to injury kind of thing that's like ugh and it makes it sort of unpalatable and the other problem i think or interesting sort of you know wrinkle in the how it relates to the book is that the movie's only the first half they come back for spring semester in the book oh really and things get even weirder because like they end up leaving campus and like at some point like Sean it's even weirder because like Sean's narrative goes into describing like him getting Lauren pregnant and like them thinking about like getting jobs and dropping out of school and stuff oh, and then Lauren's perspective like just doesn't have that at all and it's much easier to support the idea of a group of people who are all who all come off as sociopaths being unreliable narrators and when you get into right. the third person, it's just like, uh, all right, so you, you want this sociopath want- <laughs> poured a beer, this sociopath uh, lit a cigarette, this sociopath raped someone, right? But they're all in love with each other, I think. Now the movie's over. I think honestly, a good rule of thumb might just be in the vein of Mary Heron that only women should be allowed to adapt Brady Stanellis. Right, and I think it's no spoiler to say that that is the strongest of a three questionable at best films. Yep, I agree. Um, so but, what do we rate this so guy? Where do you land? I think I could be nice and give it a bad good. Um, because, I mean, I, God, it's really something to see. Like, the number of sequences and the cast and the swings. And, I mean, imagine the fervor of someone who is mad that Tarantino got all the fame uh, it, which is even sort of referenced in the movie. Um, and then, you know, waited a whole bunch of time and was just like, you know what? I'm going to show Quentin and everyone by directing a Brett Easton Ellis book. That is the the lunacy and the nihilism with which this movie arrives. Uh, it's a hubris that can't be described. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, and again, Vanderbeek is off the chain. Uh, yeah, I'll give it a bad good. I think it has to fall into bad good because it's like, unfortunately, it's so damn entertaining and it's squirmy, I think, with a contemporary lens. But I don't think the movie like ever aspires to be like a realistic depiction of anything. Not even close. Like if you asked Roger Avery, who like may or may not be in jail currently. Right. Yeah. I don't Um, think he is, but yeah, he killed someone in a drunk driving accident. Yeah, he was in jail for a minute. Um, poor guy. Uh, the dead guy, not him. Um, 
there are squirmy moments, but I think if you ask Roger Avery if this is a movie that's supposed to say something about campus sexual assault, he would be like, what? No. So Campus? What campus? Who teaches that? Yeah, exactly. Class, who teaches? <laughs> um, and I think there are just like enough like, wait, is that that guy from that thing moments yeah. in this movie that it's a pretty... Of the stupid campus movies that are out there, I think this is one of the more entertaining ones, but it's not a good movie. No. It's nonsense. Like, even without the problematic politics, it's a nonsense movie. Should we talk about American Psycho? Please. Well, maybe, this is considered... Maybe people are Freddie skipping ahead to this, yeah. Yeah. American Psycho is considered, at least on the book side of things, to be Brady Sinellis' masterpiece. I've got it right here. I was reading it last night. Yeah, the book is sick, the book is absolutely sick. There's a chapter called Cook and Eat Girl, or right. Cooks and Eats Girl. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's absolutely disgusting. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a book and movie about a guy who is a serial killer, yeah. maybe. Well, here I think we got to talk. I'm really glad you brought up the first third-person distinction because I think part of the reason that Brett Easton Ellis does not like the movie is because he maybe feels like Mary Heron like didn't take it seriously but her giving us distance from the Bateman character and letting Christian Bale do some comic things is what makes the movie incredibly watchable and what makes the book so horrifying I mean the book ends with him saying you know this is not an exit there is no exit from the mind of Patrick Bateman it is not the same experience as watching for me, one of the best Christian Bale performances. Yeah. There definitely is an exit when you're watching a movie, like the movie ends. Totally. Um, But yeah, I think that's a really good point is like, how can you have such a, I mean the movie, the the book's a horror. It's horror in my opinion. Yeah. And I think the movie weirdly is a comedy. Definitely. Like there's nothing terribly scary about it. I mean, there's some like sort of disturbing moments but it's not even particularly gory nothing pretty nothing gory, like the book. yeah for a pretty gory book it's not i mean like there's a lot of implied stuff right but you don't see really anybody like getting dismembered or anything right. you just see a lot of people like covered with blood and like people running around screaming so what happens in american psycho uh is you know descent into madness is the cliched phrase that comes to mind um, of a of a Wall Street broker in the late 80s, a, a man about our age named Patrick Bateman. He works at uh, Pierce and Pierce. People say, is that Mergers a sh- and acquisitions. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Murders and executions. Um, and then again, I mean, what is the plot really? It's just that he, he is very wealthy and then slowly believes, um, truly or falsely, that he uh, is... Uh, murdering homeless people and prostitutes and uh, co-workers. And and then is maybe investigated for it by Willem Dafoe, like looking into the appearance of the disappearance of the person he thinks he's murdered. Um, But really it's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's another, like it's a stream of consciousness sort of character profile of an unreliable person in this world of, excess and hatred and greed and a pretty funny elegant movie i think there is an idea of a patrick bateman some kind of abstraction but there is no real me only an entity something illusory 
And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. It is pretty funny. And the book's funny in moments, too, just how, like, insane it is. It's hard. Last night, even though, as much as I love the, you know, Bigfoot on the Patty Winter show, like, there's no laughing at that when it came two seconds after, like, I had sex with a severed head. (laughs) And there's plenty of laughing at one Christian Bale. Right, because he just, he's so into it. And even when he's not, even when he's like not worked up, like there are some funny worked up moments, but then there are like just some funny, like, I have to go return some videotapes, which is just him and his, you know, or like he's trying to, like he's yelling with his like Korean dry cleaner about like getting what are clearly blood stains out of his like very expensive sheets that he runs into somebody knows. And she's like, what is that? And he's like, it's a, a juice cocktail, a cran orange. <laughs> <laughs> He's, yeah, the, specif- uh, the specificity and especially the the like the almost unnecessary like second takes that come out of desperation, I think are the funniest part. Like when he. He's faking a phone call when Willem Dafoe first comes into his office. He's like, I'm just speaking to a colleague. Hold on. He's like, yes, definitely tip the stylist 15%. Okay, I got to go. T. Boone Pickens just walked in. No, don't tip the owner. <laughs> like you, it feels like gilding the lily, but the fact that they would go back to it um, is part of what makes it so funny. I think the, the, that's a great way to put it, because this movie is like the biggest gilded lily there is. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's, at this point at which this movie was made, there are such limitations on, like, what you can physically show. Yeah. So this movie just, like, has to be outrageous in other ways. And these sort of, like, doubling back moments, I think, are what, like, hold the movie, if it is held together at the end. Like, that's sort of what does it. Just, like, all the musical asides and the videotapes and then, like, Christian Bale that performance of like, he's breaking up with Reese Witherspoon, who's his fiance and Reese Witherspoon's like, but what about all our friends? Like that's your whole, like to implying that it's his whole like social network if they break up. Right. And he like legitimately acts as though he's like considering it and goes, I've thought about it. You can have them. (laughs) (laughs) I think the, the, I mean, this is one of my favorite, movie performances ever like bar none sure um i think what's so great is that he's doing he's clearly doing one of my favorite kinds of comedy which is that holdover of like jim carrey phil hartman like i'm a man of such privilege and i have a radio voice but my privilege has caused me to lose my mind Um, (laughs) it's great but he is approaching it not with you know, you never get the sense that he's incredibly tickled at himself. It almost reminds me of, like, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Like, a performance of madness that is showy and funny, given to you by someone who is taking the performance very seriously. Right. I mean, in many ways, the scenes are like that out of broad comedy. You're kind of, like, waiting for someone to realize, like, what's happening behind them. Like, unfortunately, it's like that Patrick Bateman's putting on a raincoat about to murder you. (laughs) Or, like... You know, the moment where he's, like, about to staple... Or he's about to nail gun um, his assistant. Yeah. Uh, Chloe Sevigny. Right. Sevigny? Sevigny. And 
Yeah, like, those are kind of funny. Or, like, when he's, like, just hanging out, like, doing a crossword puzzle and she's talking and the camera sort of pans and you see that (laughs) he's filled in every single word with meat and bone. (laughs) I think it would be great to uh, just, like, leave a crossword puzzle in a coffee shop done that way. (laughs) Just meat and bone, just see what people say. (laughs) Yeah. But this movie's, like, it's funny in that, like, fucked up kind of way, but, like, it knows that it's fucked up. So it's not... And I'm glad you brought up the nail gun behind Gene's head scene because it is like a broad comedy and yet you can absolutely see the slightly worse version where like the joke is on the person who's about to be brutalized and Mary Heron never quite directs it that way. You're always kind of caught between like, oh my God, I really don't want this to happen to Gene of all people. Like fuck Paul Allen, but not Gene. Um, Paul Allen. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Halberstram. Um... (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's where Mary Heron is really doing a good job. I mean, also, I think it's just, like, a beautifully, like, lit and set movie. Like, those apartments are so memorable. But then you, like, go to work where he basically, like, sleeps and does shit all day. Um, And it's just almost, it's like this almost styrofoam room that's, like, candle lit. It's, I really like some of the choices she makes. I think the set decoration and the production design are flawless, especially when you can, like, tell how out of place these, like, scumbags are in, like, the first scene. They're at this, like, really elegant sort of, like, feminine restaurant. Right, yeah. And then, like, the guy, um, what is his name? Justin Uh, Theroux? No, the other guy. Josh Uh, Lucas? Josh Lucas comes back from the bathroom. He's like, there's not even a good bathroom to do coke in. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're in a really nice, like, tea room right now. It is interesting when those fucking yuppie scumbags, like, go to... And then, they, you know, they go to, like, you know, it's not Studio 54, but it basically is. And there's, like, you know, drag queens and, like, art rockers, like, trying to have a good time. And then they're, they're just, like, trying to do coke and flaunt their money. There's also, like, just such humorous disdain for everyone in this movie. Like Mary Heron, like clearly doesn't like anyone. Doesn't like any of the characters. Nor should she. Right. Like even the artists are snobs. Right. And like even the, I mean, maybe she has like some sympathy for like the sex workers and the people sort of around these Mm -hmm, rich people. mm -hmm. Like, I think she has a lot of sympathy towards Jean, the secretary. And I just love those little moments where, she almost constructs moments of like, you know, micro misogyny as like these men are like trying this thing on that they've been told they're supposed to do. You know, like there's a scene where it's like, Hey Jean, when we go out to dinner, wear a dress, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that, that are like, that's gross that you said that like, you know, shorter skirts and like things like that. Or it's, I I like when you wear skirts, like things like that are, it doesn't feel like it's earnest. It feels like Patrick Bateman's like trying on this thing. Right. And I think that's an interesting choice. Yeah, he is. He's trying on a human suit. Yeah. Facial mask. (laughs) Right. Um, not an oil one, because that dries out your skin and makes you look older. Yeah, no alcohol in it. Sometimes, every morning, I would say nine out of ten mornings where I wake up and like look at myself first in the mirror, I go, if your face is a little puffy, I put an ice mask on. I don't say it, but I like think it. Oh my god, that's funny. Sometimes uh, my face is a little puffy, but I, like, I don't put on a, an ice pack. I d- and then I don't do a thousand crunches while watching like hardcore German porn <laughs> in like 
in pristine white cotton shorts that would be ruined after the first time you sweat in them. Right. And I think the ending of this movie is maybe like a little too faithful to the book in its obscurity and in its sort of like question mark. Yeah. The confession has meant nothing. Do you feel like, do you feel like it works or do you feel like it's kind of a cop out in the movie? Uh, no, I feel like it definitely works. I really like it. Um, I think that that it's a very well acted scene too, between him and his lawyer, um, who just all, you know, everybody's on the hunt for something, for something real in that moment. Bateman to actually be caught, you know, you as the audience to be like, did this happen? And the only thing that's real is the realist, most earnest disgust that you've seen with a guy just being like, I don't find this funny anymore. But that's all you get. I I like what it withholds, personally. Okay. Yeah. I just love the line, the sort of aside, the, I did a little cooking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. The, the clearly, like, improvised sort of, like, just go, Bale. Yeah, so keep your eyes open is just a very <laughs> weird, unnecessary thing at the end of a two-minute, like, sweaty heat check. Right. But there's also that idea, too, like, maybe he did kill these people and nobody just knows who anybody else is, so nobody cares. Oh, I think that's, I think that's 100% what's going on. Yeah. I guess I, well, the question is, like, is he imagining this because he's so horrified with his life, or is the commentary on his psyche, or is the commentary on the society around him? And I think it's both, both and neither. I think the moment that perplexes me the most, and maybe this is just him putting on this sort of like 80s corporate aesthetic as the character, but like he loves Huey Lewis in the news. Why does he tell Willem Dafoe that he thinks they're too black sounding? Because <laughs> um, he dismisses, if you haven't seen the movie, right. uh, at one point uh, the police officer Willem Dafoe is questioning Patrick Bateman in his office and he opens up his suit or his uh, briefcase and he pulls out a cassette of Huey Lewis in the news four and he says four and he says have you heard it and Patrick Bateman goes I don't really like Huey Lewis in the news they're too black sounding (laughs) I think it's a great bit I mean because it's just like to have to in his own way recant the most joy he's shown in throughout the entire movie, which is giving his spiels about like the most, you know, senselessly yeah, commercial. Oppor- right. It's such an opportunity for him to like, cause he does care about things. Right. It's just not humanity. Yeah. Like he cares about music. Um, it's basically just pop music that he cares about. And, but he talks about like, it like it's Foucault or something. Yeah. Uh, the subtle brilliance of Whitney Houston is undeniable. And I stress the word, artist. <laughs> uh, so his, like, breakdowns, uh, it's like reading think pieces on Pitchfork. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're so well articulated. Um, but those are just cut from the, the book. Right, right. I think my last, okay, one more Bateman thing that I just love. Sure. Um, I love when you can, I mean, the returning videotapes gag is a more obvious version of this when it's just like his computer, you know, he's not a human being. It's like a computer that's rebooting 
And so like it glitches a little bit. My favorite small one I had not noticed before is again when Willem Dafoe comes into the office and instead of asking, so what can I help you with? He goes, so what's the topic of discussion? And then Willem <laughs> Dafoe goes like, okay, I'm looking for Paul Allen. And he's like, hold on, can I offer you an expensive drink or something? And Willem Dafoe's like, no, 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 no. And the camera lingers on Bateman and he goes, um, so what's the topic of discussion? And it's just like, a, it's such a glitch in the program. And he, he offers him so many different options for like drinks and like refreshments. It's so good. God, it's amazing. And it's very intentional too. Like you don't get- And he get, like calls in the assistant too. Yeah, you don't get that kind of like beat glitch and resell of the line unless you're like quietly conveying something about him. I think that this movie is good, good. And I feel comfortable saying so. It just might be a little dark and morbid to be good, good for me. I think it might be a good, a good bad. Like this is a movie How that I you revisit. Possibly say that after you've seen it as many times as you have. But I'm I'm not a normal person. I feel like I can't watch. Th- well, is your mask right. of sanity it's... about to slip? This is a good, good movie. <laughs> Fine, it's a good, good movie. It's a good, good movie. You're right. There are a lot of good and memorable bits in it, but like, I feel like like all three of these movies, like what, and that's sort of what I was poking at earlier about the ending. Like, I still don't think it adds up to like a whole lot. Like it adds up to something I think stylistically, and we've never seen like a character study really. And it's beautiful acting by, uh, by Christian Bale. But I don't know in a narrative sense, like if it adds up to much. Yeah, it's not like a scathing critique of any of like these people. Like it, it's right. It's both a critique and not a critique. Yeah, I mean, it's like and, it's an atom yeah. bomb of entertainment and negativity. It's not a critique, <laughs> um, and it is a spectacle. I mean, all three of these things are spectacles in their own right. Right, right. Well, you know what Ed Gein says about podcasting. I would prefer Noah's head on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thanks for listening, folks. You can always find our episodes at berealpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook uh, if that's if you're still on that heinous website. Um, but yeah, listen to the podcast. Say hello. We would love that. What, what, what should you take us out? The greatest love of all, hip to be square? This is Susudio. <laughs>